as we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we come to you. Our hearts are cold. Warm them with your selfless love. Our hearts are sinful. Cleanse them with your precious blood. Our hearts are weak. Strengthen them with your joyous spirit. Our hearts are empty. Fill them with your divine presence. Heavenly Father, our hearts are yours. Possess them always and only for yourself. And Spirit of God, open our hearts and minds to hear your voice in the word. Empower us to believe, obey, and rest in all you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 9, verse 42. You'll find that on page 1075 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin our reading at verse 42 and read through the end of the chapter. So Mark chapter 9, beginning our reading at verse 42, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, We've said a number of times that one of the things that's going on in this section of Mark's gospel is the requirements, what what is required to follow Jesus. That's what he's talking about, what it means to be a disciple and what is required of those who would be a disciple. Um, And Jesus is confronting his disciples here with the demands of following him, and he has already shown them the radical nature of these demands. Um, If this passage sounds radical, Jesus has already said radical things about following him, uh, that you have to deny yourself, that you have to pick up your cross and follow him, that whoever wants to save his life will lose it for his sake and for the gospel. Um, We've already talked about sort of those radical demands that Jesus has made, and here we hear more. Jesus is teaching something of what it means to follow him and the total commitment that is required to follow him. And so Jesus is teaching them once again about the radical demands of being his disciples, and he does that here by teaching us about the causes of stumbling that can face us in this world, the consequences of failure, and then finally we're called to holiness. And that's how Jesus is going to teach his disciples here and how he's teaching all of us. The causes of stumbling, the consequences of failure, and the call to holiness. 
And that's how we want to think about this text together this morning. Uh, Jesus talks about the causes of stumbling in verses 42 through 48. And if we really want to understand the thrust of what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand the terms he uses as he meant them so that we can understand to write what he's saying. Uh, The first thing we need to be clear about is that when Jesus is talking about these little ones who believe in me, he's not talking only about children or even mainly about children. Um, The the word there is just little, and that word little can mean children. Um, In other contexts, it might mean children. But I think Jesus is continuing this theme of all of his disciples being little ones. You remember that earlier in this chapter, they had had a discussion about who is the greatest of them. And Jesus had taught them, that's not what's important in the kingdom. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be least. You have to be like this little child. And he put that little child and said, whoever receives such a one receives me. I think he's continuing that theme. I think because Jesus spoke this way and encouraged a lot of the apostles to speak this way to the church as well. John addresses little children in his epistle. And by that, he doesn't mean he's only talking to the children. He's talking to all of God's people in that way. Jesus means all of his disciples here, all who believe in him. Uh, Any one of these little ones who believe in me. Jesus is making this expansive to include all those who belong to him and says we should not cause any one of them to stumble. We should not cause any one of them to sin. Uh, We have to understand what Jesus means here when he uses that word causing to sin. We have to understand it because he uses it several times in this text. In verses 42, 43, 45, 47, it's all the same word. We're not to cause anyone else who believes in Jesus to sin. We're not to tolerate any members in us that cause us to sin. So what is that, exactly does Jesus have in mind here when, he talking, when he's talking about causing to sin? Well, you may notice that there's a little note in your ESV, a footnote that says, or stumble, um, because this word in Greek really literally means to trip someone up. Um, and so we know that you can trip someone up physically, you can cause them to stumble, or you can trip someone up spiritually and cause them to sin. Um, And that's why the word could mean both things. It means to trip up. And people can be tripped up literally, and they can be tripped up figuratively. And so I think it's right for them to say, Jesus is not primarily saying here, don't trip people. Right? What is he saying here? Don't trip someone up spiritually. Don't cause them to stumble spiritually. And I think it's important for us to think about that, not just to show you that I did my work in the Greek this week like I'm supposed to as a minister, uh, but to show you that it makes it more expansive if we think about it that way. It's not, merely not, it's not merely just doing something that would cause someone to sin. It's doing something that would cause anyone to stumble spiritually in any way. Right? It makes it more expansive if we think about it in that sense. As one commentator said, there are many ways in which another's faith or discipleship may be wrecked, and we are not to cause spiritual shipwreck for ourselves or for other believers. And that should make sense, right? Because following Jesus, being his disciple, um, is more than just about sin. There's a lot involved in following Jesus. Right? He calls us to certain things that we are to believe. There are implications for our faith in following Jesus. 
There are ways that he calls us to live. There are implications for our lives in how we follow Jesus. He calls us to glorify him and his Father, and those are their implications in that for our worship. Discipleship is much broader than just sinning or not sinning. And Jesus is really being expansive here in what he says to us in regards to others. We are not to do anything that would cause another believer to stumble spiritually. We're not to do anything that would cause them to stumble spiritually in any one of their areas of life. We have that responsibility as believers not to cause others to stumble. Not to cause others to stumble spiritually. And that's the first call that he gives. Uh, Not one of us is to be the cause of spiritual shipwreck for someone else. We are to do everything we can to be a help to our brothers and sisters in the Lord and not to be a hindrance. There are enough dangers in the Christian life, enough difficulties in following Jesus that we don't need to add ourselves to those difficulties for other people. It's hard enough to follow the Lord without causing one another to stumble. And that's the last thing we should want to do as a Christian, to be a stumbling block for a fellow believer, to cause them to sin, to cause them to struggle in their faith or in their walk or in their worship. And so Jesus is really giving his disciples a call to self-examination and really giving all of us as his disciples, all who say we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to that kind of self-examination. Am I doing things that are hurting another Christian's ability to follow Jesus? Am I hurting other people in their faith, in their walk, in their worship? Because if so, I'm doing exactly what Christ warns me not to do. We are to have a care with how we act towards our fellow Christians. And Jesus says we are not only to have a care for the spiritual welfare of others, we need to have a care for our own spiritual welfare. We're not to tolerate anything in ourselves that is hindering our ability to follow Jesus. We're to have that same care with our own spiritual lives. And that's a call to a different kind of self-examination. Not am I doing something that is hurting someone else, but am I tolerating in my own life something that's causing me to stumble? Am I tolerating something in my own life that's hindering my faith, that's hindering my walk, that's hindering my worship? One person said, Jesus is reminding us the danger comes not only from without, but from within, and that each person needs to understand what aspect of his or her own behavior, tastes, or interests are a potential source of spiritual downfall and take action accordingly. We are not to do any of these things. And if we examine ourselves and recognize in ourselves ways we are causing others to stumble or ways that we are stumbling ourselves, we need to take action. We need to take action because of the consequences of failing to do so. And Jesus wants us to think about the causes for stumbling in light of the consequences of failure that he says here. What are the consequences of not getting these things right? What is he warning us of here? Well, the warnings are severe and extreme, aren't they? 
They're very serious warnings that Jesus gives here. They're graphic, right? If you're causing someone else to stumble spiritually, Jesus says, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Um, Not just any millstone, a really big millstone. Um, And remember, this is all a conversation that's happening in a house in Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. So it comes with a particular punch to be sitting next to a sea and talk about being thrown into a sea with a rock tied around your neck. It would come with a particular emphasis to them because most of the disciples would have known that just up the coast from where they are, the Romans had done exactly that. Um, There was a Jewish leader, Judas the Galilean, an early zealot leader who's mentioned in Acts 5.37 who led a revolt. And when the Romans put the revolt down, their response to putting the revolt down to discourage further revolutionaries was to take the leaders and tie stones to them and throw them in the sea. Um, It's a way of drowning someone immediately. Uh, It's a graphic picture. It's a picture that they would have understood. And Jesus is saying, if you cause someone to stumble spiritually, it would be better for you if someone did that to you. Threw you in the sea to be drowned. And if your hand or your foot or your eye were to cause you to sin, it would be better for you to cut them off or pluck out your eye rather than to allow it to continue to cause your spiritual downfall. It would be better for you to do that than to allow it to shipwreck your faith or your walk or your worship. Those are graphic pictures. Those are serious pictures. And why does Jesus use pictures like that? Because he wants to impress on us the seriousness of sin, the extreme danger that sin poses to our spiritual lives. The wages of sin is death. So often we quote that and want to rush on to, but the gift of God is eternal life. We like that part. We don't like the wages of sin is death so much. But that's what Jesus is impressing on his disciples here. You have to understand what's at stake and the seriousness of sin. The wages of sin is death and not just temporal death, not just death out of this life. That's why it would be better to die than to cause someone to stumble spiritually. Because that death is not just this death from this life, it's eternal, unending torment. It's hell that Jesus is talking about. That's why it would be better to be drowned in the sea than to be lost eternally. It would be better to go blinded in one eye or crippled in some way into heaven than to be lost eternally, to go into that place of eternal torment where the fire is not quenched and where the worm does not die. Right? That's a picture of an unending kind of destruction. The fire that never goes out, the worm that never stops eating. Those are graphic and terrible images, aren't they? But what is Jesus doing? Impressing upon us the ultimate seriousness of sin. 
And others who've seen this and heard this message of the Lord have done the same, impressing the seriousness. Maybe we're familiar with that saying of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a matter of ultimate seriousness. Jesus wants us to understand that. And we understand that from, from from our lives, from our experiences. If a doctor tells you that you have a limb that has gangrene, and that gangrene will continue to spread unless you cut it off. People cut it off to save their lives. If you find out you have a, a limb that has cancer in it, and if nothing is done, it'll metastasize and spread throughout the body, what do you have them do? You have them cut it off because you know it'll kill you if left. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand sin is that kind of spiritual rot. If nothing is done about it, it will kill you. It's not to be tolerated. Um, it's not to be put up with in the life. Because left unchecked, it will lead to spiritual and everlasting ruin. Jesus wants people to understand the seriousness of this, the cost of failure, the consequences of going into damnation. That's why, as someone said, whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God must be discarded promptly and decisively. The consequences of failure are to go into hell. And Jesus wants us to understand that. But the consequences of failure would also be to miss glory. Right? What is the contrast here? Jesus doesn't only talk about hell here, does he? He does talk about it. He does talk about torment in terrible terms. And that's why we talk about it. None of us come to church and think, well, I'm glad we can talk about undying worms and unquenchable fire this morning. That's exactly the word I needed. We don't like talking about it. It's not something that we enjoy talking about, but we must talk about it. Jesus talks about it. But we also have to understand why Jesus talks about it. Why does Jesus talk about these things and these dangers? Because he wants us to avoid that reality. He wants us to enter into glory. Why did Jesus come? He says in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and that abundantly. Jesus wants us to understand the stakes are eternal life and eternal death. And he wants us to enter into eternal life. He preaches this way to be a help to us. What does he not want us to do? Forfeit our souls for the sake of the things that we're doing in this life. Isn't that what he already said in Mark 8, 35 and 36? Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit you to stay doing the things that you're doing if that would walk you right into hell? He doesn't want that reality for us. He doesn't want that to be the end. What is his goal? That we would enter life and enter glory. 
That would be the real consequence of failure, not just to have entered into that place of torment, but to miss that place of extreme glory, that place of life, the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand is at stake, the difference between an awful spiritual death and an abundant spiritual life. And that's what he wants us to enter into to enter into life. And I think that's why Jesus drives home that idea by talking twice about entering into life and then the third time changing the metaphor. Do you notice how he does that in these verses? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, or it is better for you to enter life. Right? And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, or it is better for you to enter life. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter, we would think he would say, the life. But notice the third time he doesn't say the life. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God. Enter the kingdom of God. Why is that so significant? Because Mark's gospel has been filled with conversations about the kingdom of God. The beginning of the gospel was the good news that the kingdom has come, the kingdom that was anticipated, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here because the king has come and he's brought the kingdom. And we've seen how the kingdom of God has been brought to bear on this present evil age and the glory of that kingdom and the goodness of that kingdom. Right? This kingdom is so good that as it comes into the world, it destroys the works of the devil. It drives out his dominion where it comes. This is the kingdom that drives out sickness and disability from those who come into contact with him. This is the power of the kingdom that can calm the winds and the waves. This is the power of the kingdom that can feed the hungry with good food. This is the power of the kingdom that raises the dead to life. This has been a kingdom that has come. This has been a kingdom that has impacted the world in glorious breaking in and the power of that age to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always been his kingdom, the power of his kingdom, but now what does he say to his disciples? You can enter that kingdom. They've seen something of it continue to break in. But now he says, not about it coming or about it breaking in, but about you entering it. The place that we've just seen flashes of its glory and flashes of its power and its peace and its restoration. Jesus holds out the hope to us of entering that kingdom. By grace through faith, that is what the Christian will do. Enter into that place of rest and that place of restoration to find eternal life and peace and happiness. Jesus wants us to understand what the stakes are and what the cost of failure is so that we would enter into life, so we would not miss that glory. And those who understand that kingdom and its life, what do they do? 
God's word tells us they strive to enter that rest. That's what Jesus is telling us to do, to strive to enter that rest and to put off anything that would entangle us from getting there, to put off anything that would stumble us, that would threaten to rob us of life and glory. It's a call to know the consequences of failure. And then Jesus also reinforces this message by the call for holiness that comes at the end of this text. Jesus gives us this call for holiness in verses 49 and 50 through a number of references to salt. A number of references to salt. Now, verse 49 is notoriously difficult to interpret. Um, One of the commentaries I read this week said, I know of 15 different interpretations of verse 49, and I'll just share the one that I think is best. And I was thankful to him for that. Um, And I'm going to do my best to say, I've worked hard this week to try to understand verse 49. There are different interpretations. uh, So I'll just share with you the one that I think is best and that's most likely. Um, Everyone seems here to see a a reference to sacrificial language. For everyone will be salted with fire seems to be an allusion to sacrifice. Because the only places we really see salt and fire combined are Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. Where we read, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So salt and fire seem to be a sacrificial metaphor here. It's the language of sacrifice. And then it's required of us to think about what does that metaphor teach us about sacrifice. And I think what it teaches us is salt identifies the believer and fire purifies the believer as a sacrifice to the Lord. The fire is a fire that purifies and the salt is a salt that identifies. So if this is sacrificial language and this is a sacrificial metaphor, then how is salt identifying the believer in this sense? Well, salt adding to the sacrifice showed that it had a special status before the Lord. It was most holy to him. And adding salt showed something of that most holy character of the sacrifice because it it was a sacrifice that was thought of as being well-seasoned. I don't know if you've ever had a meal that's sort of bland and you need to add salt to it, and salt helps to enhance what you're you're eating. Um, And you, you taste it then and say, that's what it needed. It just needed some salt. Well, in putting salt in the in the offering, it was a way of saying, this is supposed to be a specially well-seasoned offering to our God. Uh, by putting into it, it, it indicated this, this sacrifice will be most holy to God. It'll be pleasing to God as it comes before him. Salt indicated the special status of that sacrifice. It was most holy. And salt was also a picture in the Old Testament of permanence. Uh, Salt was a a testimony of permanence. If you wanted to talk about something that was lasting, you talked about salt. And there's a reference here, isn't there, to a covenant of salt in Leviticus 2.13. 
There are two covenants of salt that are referred to in the Old Testament. One was a covenant of salt that the Lord made with Aaron and his sons to be priests forever. We read about that in uh, Numbers 18. Uh, that he was, they were to be, they, God was making with them a covenant of salt. That, that talked about a covenant that is lasting, that is unconditional. God is making that covenant promise. The other covenant of salt we read about is in Second Chronicles 13, where God makes a covenant of salt with David and his sons to be kings forever. There too, it's a permanent covenant. Sometimes covenant of salt is translated lasting covenant. It's something that speaks of permanence. Something that speaks of something that lasts. A lasting covenant that is from God speaks of his commitment. And so if we think about that metaphor, that Jesus is saying there's a day coming when every one of my disciples, that's the everyone he's referring to, will be salted. What is the promise? I like how one person put it, that every cross-bearing and disenfranchised disciple, even the little one, is regarded by God as most holy. He or she is a most holy offering to God the embodiment of utter dependence on him and covenant loyalty to him. It speaks that we are most holy to our God. And how will we be salted as his disciples? We will be identified as his by that salt and we will be purified as his by fire. We will be salted with fire. Now again, this is a challenge for people to say right now. What, how do we think about this fire? How do we rightly think about the fire? And, it, and they've usually thought of it in two ways. Either the fire of, of the trials that come to believers or the fiery presence of the Holy Spirit who, 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 who purifies us. But those are not mutually exclusive, are they? Because the Holy Spirit, through his purifying work in the life of the Christian, often works through both blessings and trials to purify us. It's James' point, right, in James 1, that there are many trials that come to us and we should count it joy, not that the trials themselves are joy, but what they produce. And so I think that's the nature of this idea. There's a time coming when God's people will be salted with fire, identified as the most holy that they are before their God, identified and purified by him, to be most holy to the Lord. Again, another commentator was helpful. Every cross-bearing disciple is a living, most holy sacrifice, soon to be irrevocably and and exclusively salted to God by the fiery, sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit and is therefore to be treated with the utmost care. And that's how I think we see this, this idea connecting to what has come before it. Because if we are most holy to God and are going to be sanctified by the Spirit in this life for perfection in the next, what place should sin be allowed to have in our lives? And what place should we allow sin to have in the lives of others through our conduct? Rather, we are to strive to be holy, knowing what God is going to do for his beloved people knowing what is our destiny to be the most holy 
purified, holy before our God, then we should allow nothing unholy in us and cause no unholy consequences in the lives of our neighbors because of who we are and because of who we hope to be. Rather, we should strive for holiness. Paul picks up that sacrificial metaphor too, doesn't he, in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's why we believers who will be fully salted with fire and made holy in the future ought to cultivate that saltiness now. One of the things that makes this verse, this, these two verses at the end a challenge is that the, the metaphor shifts a little bit. Um, sometimes we do that too in our own conversation. We'll say, speaking of that, let me tell you about this. Uh, we use that kind of same idea to transition a new direction. And in verse 49, the metaphor is sacrificial, salt in its holy use in a sacrifice. And then in, 40, in 50, it transitions to more than normal use of salt. That's the metaphor that's being used. Uh, Jesus said, salt is good. Uh, if you like salt, you, you agree with that. You know, some of us, no matter how much salt is in something, we say, ooh, that's good, I like that. Um, and some will say, I hope it's not too salty. And you say, not for me. Um, that's not always good for you, but it might taste good, right? We know that's true, right? Salt is good. Uh, it was good in that world to add taste to what could be often tasteless food. And it's also good as a preservative. Salt was used to keep things from spoiling in the ancient world. You didn't have refrigeration or other things that you could do uh, to stop things from going bad, but salt was something that helped food from uh, going bad. And so Jesus is talking about salt now in that way, the ordinary way that we understand these things. Salt is good. It makes food good. It makes food last. Salt is good. But what happens when the salt loses its saltiness? What happens when salt stops being salt? Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Uh, this has been perplexing for people, especially people who know their chemistry, because they say salt doesn't go bad. Salt is a very stable chemical. Now we're getting into chemistry, which I'm really out on the ledge, so I need to back away from it a little bit. Um, but the experts tell us that salt is very stable. So how can, we, how can Jesus say salt will lose his, its saltiness? Well, salt is very stable in and of itself, but the salt they had was not pure salt. They usually got their salt from the rocks around the Dead Sea, or they would take uh, water and they would evaporate it in pans to get salt that way. But if you do that, if you evaporate water from the salt or gather the salt the way they did, it was often not pure salt. There was other chemicals mixed into it. And what that meant was there were certain things that could happen to that salt where the actual salt would leach out and you'd be left with other chemicals, like gypsum or other kinds of chemicals. Again, we're out on the ledge with chemicals. So I'm, that's my whole chemistry lesson for now. But that's how salt could lose its saltiness. The salt would leach out of whatever chemical, and whatever that white powdery stuff was, it wasn't salt anymore. It would have a stale, alkaline taste. You would notice that it didn't make the food taste good, that it didn't keep stuff from spoiling. You would recognize this salt has lost its saltiness. The salt has gone out of it. 
And as Jesus tells us elsewhere, once that's happened, the only thing you can do with that chemical is throw it out. Whatever's left there is not profitable for use as salt. It's lost its saltiness. And Jesus is using that metaphor here to talk about the good gifts that God has given us going bad through our neglect. That God gives us gracious gifts, but if they go bad through our neglect, what good will they be? They'll be like that salt where all the salt has leached out and whatever you're left with, it's not of much good. That's what Calvin saw in this verse. He said, when men have lost by their carelessness that savor which they obtained by the grace of God, there is no further remedy. And that can happen to Christians, right? That we're not making the progress we ought to make. That was one of the frustrations of the writer of Hebrews, saying we should be going on to more advanced things by now. You should have been making better use of the gifts that God has given you to this point. But I find that I need to go back to basics with you because you seem not to be making progress. And that can happen when we are careless with the things that we've been given. To not use the gifts that God has given to us the way they ought to be given. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. Become like that salt that loses its saltiness. Rather, what does he want? For us to have that salt in ourselves. To have that salt that will do its work of making us well-seasoned disciples of Christ and will preserve us from corruption, from spoiling, from going backwards where we ought to be. And good, wonderful saints have said that a lot about the Christian life. To say, you know, if we're not going forward, we're really kind of going backward. If we're not seeking to strive to follow the Lord, it's not that we're holding ground, we're actually losing ground. And this is a call to devotion, isn't it? And it's called to devotion with the hopes of a result. Because where are these salty metaphors ending in verse 50? Be at peace among yourselves. The hope is that it will produce peace. And really, Jesus is is ending on the theme he began with, right? If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, that's the breaking of peace. That's causing disruption and division in the church. What is the hope? To have that salt in yourself, to cultivate the good gifts that God has given in order that it might produce the fruit of peace among believers. In order that it might produce peace among believers, that we would be a blessing to one another in the way that we live. The call to discipleship is radical. It's demanding. Jesus is not pulling any punches here, talking about what it is to follow him and what is required of those who would follow him. It's costly to follow Jesus, and we have to count the cost. But I I think often about what J.C. Ryle said when he said, you know, it costs much to follow Jesus, but it pays. It costs much to follow Jesus, but it pays. We are following after the Savior. His path was no easy path. This gives us a sense of his dedication because he never did anything that made anyone else stumble. And he never tolerated anything in himself that was a cause to stumble. 
and he made peace between us and our God. So this passage is a call for us to take what Jesus is calling us to do seriously. To never stop striving to put off anything that would cause others to stumble spiritually. To put off everything in ourselves that would cause us to stumble spiritually. To seek to preserve the salt of grace in us that will season our fellowship together and preserve our peace. And to pray for the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit to do these things. When we read these radical demands for discipleship, it should drive us to prayer because it will remind us that we cannot do these things in our own strength. We need the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit to do these things. And we strive to follow the Lord in the confidence that a great day is coming for his people when we will be salted with fire and made eternal, perfect sacrifices to our God. When all of those split loyalties and split motives will be gone out of us forever, and we will be most holy to the Lord forever. In light of who we one day will be, let us then strive to be the kind of people Christ calls us to be by his help in the strength of the Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to these words of your Son, we recognize that these are, this is a hard call. And it's in our nature to want to somehow diminish the call or lower the bar till we can comfortably step over it. But we recognize that these are serious calls to us, that the consequences of failure are serious, both to enter into torment and to miss glory. So we pray that you would fill us with the help of the Spirit. We cannot do these things in ourselves. We are incapable of shouldering this load on our own. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we would have a desire to be nothing but a help to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would seriously think about anything in our lives that is causing us not to walk with you and seek to drive it out with the help of your Spirit. And to look forward to that day when there will be no more conflict in our lives. We know this is a hard call because we know how much sin still resides in our hearts and in our members. But help to fill us with the hope of that day when all of these things will be purged out by the fire of the Spirit and that we'll be salted most holy sacrifices to you. And in the hope of that future, may we strive to pursue it now following after our Savior, who tolerated nothing in his life that would cause him or others to stumble and has entered into the glory of your kingdom and is coming again soon to take us into that glory. Help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.